It's the Adam Ragusea podcast, episode 41. We're talking today about two food descriptors that are vague, ill-defined, ambiguous, or otherwise difficult to use. I'm talking about the words savory and hearty. What do these adjectives actually mean? According to whom? What can science tell us that might help us to refine and standardize the definitions and to express ourselves more accurately? To modify the maxim, talking about food is like dancing about architecture. But that's the job description here on the Ragusea pod, and it all starts with an audience question. Ask Adam. Hi, Adam. This is James from the UK. The other night, my partner and I were eating a slow cooker stew we'd made, comprised of essentially onion, tomato, carrots, potatoes, sausages, and lentils. It was really good. During the meal, my partner and I both described it as hearty. We then came to realise that neither of us know exactly what heartiness means in this context, and yet we both believed the meal to be such. Is it created via a particular combination of ingredients, or a type of ingredient? All I know is hearty foods make me feel good in some deep, fundamental way. Let us, of course, stipulate, James, that words are social constructs, and so they mean whatever people say they mean. But looking at definitions and all of the normal references, it seems obvious that hardiness, as it applies to food, derives from one or more figurative uses of the word heart. Instances where people use heart to describe something more than just the muscle in your chest that pumps your blood. People do eat heart muscle as a kind of meat, and it would be convenient if the answer to your question was simply, hearty foods are foods that have a lot of heart in them. But alas, I don't think that's usually true. I think this derives from some of the less literal uses of the word heart. There is, for example, the definition I'm reading off of Wiktionary, heart, emotional strength that allows one to continue in difficult situations, courage, spirit, a will to compete. To use it in a sentence that might be relatable to a Brit like James, Take heart, lads. We're going over the top. We'll root those bloody jerrys out of their trenches yet. Was that not a timely cultural reference? Was that a little bit out of date? This use of the word heart derives from ancient and nearly universal pre-scientific beliefs among people that the heart is the epicenter of human emotion. The idea that feelings come from the heart. We now know this to be untrue, of course. The brain is the seat of all feeling and thought. But back in the day, all we knew is that when we got big feels, our heart rhythms would change in ways that we could perceive with our tactile sensations. You get excited or scared You feel your heart suddenly beat a lot faster to supply your muscles with all of the oxygen they'll need to either fight that saber-toothed tiger or to run away. 
especially if there's an element of surprise involved, you might feel a dropping or a sinking feeling in your heart or in your stomach, which can be blood rapidly transferring to your extremities and certain organs, again, to support fight or flight. It can also be like a palpitation, which is some kind of irregular or skipped heartbeat. We even say, my heart skipped a beat when we are surprised in some way, good or bad. These days, we know that those emotions originate in our brains and catalyze downstream physiological effects, such as how our heart beats. But back then, people just felt their feelings in their chest. So they figured their emotions emanated from the heart, straight from the heart. We especially feel threat-related emotions in our hearts, hence this use of the noun heart to mean bravery in the face of danger. And then perhaps people broadened that to mean the psychological ability to achieve anything difficult. That boy's got heart. I'll give him that. He might not have any brains, but he's got heart. That is a distinction that would have made no sense at all to the ancient Egyptians who believed the heart was the seat of all mental activity, not just emotions, but also intelligence, cognition, memory, personality, all of that was in the heart, they believed. Ancient Egyptians seemed to think that the brain was just some kind of vestigial organ like your appendix, as evidenced by the fact that they simply discarded the brain in the mummification process, whereas all other major organs got preserved for eternity in their own little pots. We should do a video about eating brains, by the way. Brains are very much like egg yolk, as far as cooking and nutrition are concerned, except that they can give you mad cow disease. But speaking of nutrition, people generally use the word hearty to describe food that is particularly nutritious. And the reason that's confusing is that the meaning of nutritious has changed somewhat in recent decades. Nutrients are generally divided into two broad categories, macronutrients and micronutrients. Macronutrients are the things we need to eat a lot of, basically things that you couldn't fit into a pill. And micronutrients are the things we need to eat in tiny amounts, such that you could fit them into a pill if you wanted. Modern people in the developed world generally get more than enough macronutrients, particularly carbohydrates and fats. Most of us actually get too much fat and carbs. Protein is debatable. Optimal protein intake depends on your goals and what kind of activity you're doing. But most people in the developed world have no trouble getting enough protein to meet their basic requirement of essential amino acids to keep from getting a sailor disease. We don't usually struggle to get enough macros in modern life, unless you count fiber as a macro, which some people do for good reason. But let's just say that today, usually, we get more carbs and fats than we need. 
And sometimes we get less than what we need of some of the micronutrients, vitamins and minerals, etc. So when we talk about nutritious food today, usually we're talking about stuff that's relatively high in micronutrients and relatively low in macronutrients, particularly the macros that chiefly provide us with energy, fats and carbs, because most of us get more food energy than we need. An example of what we might describe today as nutritious food would be green leafy vegetables, tons of micronutrients, tons of fiber, but very low on the other macros. That's how we think of it today, because that's what our nutritional needs look like today. But just a few generations ago, lots of people, even in the developed world, they still had to make an effort to get their macros in addition to their micros. People had to seek out fats and carbs rather than consciously avoid them because food was not nearly as abundant. And so even in medical literature from a few decades ago, the word nutritious was used much closer to its original 16th century meaning, which is nourishing. The word nutritious is derived from nourish, and nourish is derived from nurse, meaning to suckle milk at your mother's breast, the most nourishing food there is for a baby. Hearty describes food that is nutritious in the old meaning of the word, which is nourishing food, food that is high in calories and protein and all the vitamins and minerals you need, though people had almost zero understanding of micronutrients back then, and they mostly just understood food to be an energon cube. You eat it, and it allows you to run and jump and fight and mate, and then find some more food so that you can repeat the cycle. Pre-modern people knew that some food gave them more strength than other foods, because you can literally feel that. You can feel the difference between bread hitting your bloodstream versus kale hitting your bloodstream. The bread gives you a rush of blood glucose that you literally feel. That's what a sugar rush is, because enzymes in your body easily break down the starch into glucose. The use of hardiness to describe particularly nourishing food probably derives from meanings of the word heart used to describe the inner strength necessary to overcome challenges. There's a related definition of heart in Wiktionary, quote, vigorous and efficient activity, power of fertile production, condition of the soil, whether good or bad, as in, this is hardy soil. It's all the same stuff. It's all describing energy, the capacity to do work, one measurement of which is calories. When we talk about calories in reference to food, it's usually short for kilocalories, a thousand calories. A kilocalorie is the thermal energy needed to raise the temperature of one kilo of water by one degree Celsius. Tangent on a tangent, the word calorie is derived from an 18th century scientific theory of heat that was very incorrect. 
the uh, revolutionary-era French chemist Antoine Lavoisier, who helped formulate the metric system, that guy proposed that heat was not a kind of energy, but rather a kind of matter, an actual substance that he called caloric, from the Latin word for heat, calor. When you see heat transferring from one mass to another, as when warm air melts ice into water, Lavoisier thought that that was this gaseous substance called caloric, moving from the air into the ice, where the caloric might change states and become a liquid. He was wrong about all of that, but in practice, that was a pretty good way of thinking about it, right? Because if you think of heat as being a substance, then you've internalized the first law of thermodynamics, which observes that energy can neither be created nor destroyed. It simply changes from one form to another, or it moves from one place to another, the same way that a substance does. If you think of heat as being this substance called caloric that moves around, heating other stuff up, well, then you're able to intuit that ice melting in a warm room is simply energy moving from one part of the system into another part of the system. And therefore, to warm the ice into water, the air will have to give up some of its heat. It will get cooler in the room because some of that caloric moved from the air into the frozen water. That's why ice chills down a space. Lavoisier was a pretty smart guy. And I suppose, in a way, he has been somewhat vindicated by Einstein and all of the subsequent quantum physicists observing how energy and matter might actually be the same thing at the fundamental level. But that is way over my head. That's just, uh, that's just the Star Trek talking. But speaking of matter, substance, if you put hardy, as it applies to food, into a thesaurus, one of the synonyms that comes up is substantial. Hardy and substantial are synonyms. Referring to food as substantial is rather old-fashioned. It's not something you hear in the U.S. very much. I hear it more in U.K. media, James, perhaps because it is enshrined in U.K. liquor laws that were established in the 1950s and 60s. U.K. establishments have broader rights to serve alcohol if they are serving it with a substantial meal, as opposed to with a mere bar snack. For scientifically legit reasons, you get less drunk off of alcohol if you consume it with a large volume of food, because the food dilutes the booze and it slows its absorption into your bloodstream. Your liver is able to metabolize the ethanol before it ever backs up to your brain and makes you drunk. The legal distinction between substantial food versus snacks came roaring back to relevancy in the UK during the early COVID pandemic, when the government closed down the pubs to slow transmission of the virus, but they still allowed for the sale of alcohol at establishments serving substantial meals. 
The justification being that even in a mass outbreak of highly infectious disease, people still got to eat. So you have to let the restaurants stay open. And if you if you already have people in a crowded restaurant, the damage is already done. They might as well have a pint with their pie. So pubs responded by simply offering more and bigger portions of food at the bar to serve as legal pretext for staying open and selling beer and wine and liquor as their primary business. Just Googling this, I am finding all kinds of hilarious news items from the UK where officials are arguing over what kind of food counts as substantial as opposed to a snack. There seems to have been particular disagreement about whether scotch eggs count as a snack. A scotch egg is a soft-boiled egg covered in a thick layer of sausage, then breaded and deep-fried. If a scotch egg is a snack to you, then you've either got to be a Dickensian coal miner, or you probably just eat way too many calories. The cabinet minister, Robert Jenrick went on London's LBC radio station where a presenter asked him if a sausage roll or a Cornish pasty constituted a substantial meal in the eyes of the government. And the right honorable Mr. Jenrick said it could if you eat it from a plate at a table with chips or a side salad or, quote, whatever it comes with. So if you're selling standalone hand pies with beer, you're breaking temporary COVID law. If you're selling hand pies with chips and beer, chips, of course, meaning French fries in this context, then you're perfectly all right in the eyes of the law. And people wonder why I am so fascinated by your country, James. When we fight about stuff like that over here, we just sound stupid. When you fight about stuff like that, it sounds adorkable. When y'all get your knickers in a twist. My knickers aren't twisted at all right now because I am wearing sleek, soft, and comfortable Me Undies, sponsor of this episode. Hey, Valentine's Day is coming up. You know that feeling when your special person says, hey, How's about you and me get in a room and uh, do what comes natural? Well, that's the feeling that you get when you slip in or out of the new limited edition MeUndies Valentine's Day collection. Add some heat to your V-Day with underwear from MeUndies and get 20% off your first purchase. Plus, get free standard shipping and free returns when you go to MeUndies.com slash Ragusea. My special person and I both wear MeUndies Almost exclusively now, Lauren converted to MeUndies long before they started supporting my content. MeUndies are just so soft and cool to the touch and unlikely to ride up deep into places where only your special person or your healthcare provider has any business going. Underwear shouldn't be a pain. It should be fun, just like love should be fun. Love of someone else, or perhaps love of self. It should all feel real good. And that's why MeUndies has super comfortable and adorkable undies. Bralettes, loungewear, 
and more in a flirty new prints for this V-Day season. Nothing is sexier than feeling comfortable, so get matching with someone you love, or just match with your favorite ball of fur for the cutest pics anyone has ever seen. Available in sizes extra small to 4X, they have something for every booty to fall in love with. Get 20% off your first order and free U.S. shipping right to your door at MeUndies.com slash Chat with their incredible cheek squad about any questions or sizing concerns. MeUndies.com slash That's in the description. Thank you, MeUndies. Anyway, substantial. Hardy and substantial are, according to my thesaurus, synonyms. Substantial in reference to food is not something that you hear often over in the States anymore. I think I first heard it in that R.E.M. song, The Sidewander Sleeps Tonight. Baby instant soup doesn't really grab me. Today I need something more substantial. Actually, the line in the song is sub-sub-sub-substantial. A can of beans or black-eyed peas, some Nescafe and ice, a candy bar, a falling star, or a reading from Dr. Seuss. And that's the point where Michael Stipe broke up laughing at his own absurd lyrics, and they left that in the final mix of the record. Automatic for the people. God, I miss R.E.M., They were right to retire. Retiring protected their legacy, but I still miss them a lot. Being from Georgia, R.E.M. loved to use old Southern grandma expressions in their songs. Losing my religion is another one of those. It means getting upset, losing your cool. Old-fashioned, upper-class, white, Southern U.S. English has a lot of British-isms, probably language that they cultivated as status symbols to maintain the strict social hierarchy of the Old South as compared to the ostensibly more egalitarian North. I wonder if that's why substantial persisted somewhat longer down here in the South and how it ended up in a Michael Stipe lyric. Substantial could be taken to mean high calorie. It could also refer to flavor, and textural properties of the food that serve as a good enough proxy of calorie density. Like, is this food heavy? Literally heavy. Is it solid? Or is it loose and watery? Is it something in between? We might not think of a brothy soup as being substantial, but thicken it up with some starch and call it a stew, and then we definitely think of that as substantial or hearty. Just looking at the foods that people use the word hearty to describe, they tend to be high calorie, yes, but they share a few other properties. Hearty foods usually contain a diversity of macronutrients. A bag of chips, and by that I mean crisps, Brits, a bag of chips has a ton of calories, but people usually don't call it hearty And I think that's in part because it has only carbs and fats. Hearty dishes usually have a lot of carbs and fats and protein. James described a stew consisting of vegetables and potatoes and lentils and sausages, which are generally a very high-fat meat product, 
A hearty meal is one that has that has it all, right? Has everything that you could possibly need to be strong and to overcome challenges with heart. Lots of carbs, fats, protein, also fiber and micronutrients from all the vegetables. Does that mean a dish has to have lots of different ingredients to be considered hearty? Maybe, but there's an exception that proves the rule, and that is beans. Stewed bean dishes, like bean chili here in the U.S., they get described as hearty all the time. What's the soup of the day? Well, it's hearty bean chili. Why do beans get to be hearty all on their own? Because, I think, beans have a lot of both carbs and protein inside them. Legumes are a package deal. You get your carbs and your protein and a little fat and quite a lot of fiber. Beans are the perfect food. Stew beans with some onions and tomatoes or tomatillos, dump in some spices, and you've got chili. Though it's more likely to be described as like hearty chili if it is thick. If it's really watery, brothy chili, then it's just chili. If it's a tighter stew-type consistency, then it's more substantial. It's got ample quantities of a variety of macronutrients. It is hearty. It's also hearty because it is savory, right? Nobody uses hearty to describe desserts, even though desserts are generally the most calorie-dense foods we eat, and they often contain a variety of macronutrients. A slice of chocolate cake has lots of carbs, lots of fats, and even some protein from the eggs and the wheat. Chocolate cake is dense, it's substantial, but no one calls cake hearty. Hearty we reserve for savory dishes. And that, of course, raises the question, what does savory even mean? Quick tangent. Notice that I said raises the question. I didn't say begs the question. Lots of people say begs the question in a situation like that. But lots of snooty, educated people would say that that's wrong. The phrase comes from classical logic, where begging the question is the name of a type of logical fallacy or a mistake in reasoning. It's in there with other common fallacies like straw man, ad hominem, red herring, begging the question. Beg in this context doesn't mean ask. It means assume or take for granted. And question in this context doesn't necessarily mean a direct question that someone is asking, but rather it means the subject that is up for debate. The question before us today is, what makes this stew so hearty? This stew is hearty because it is substantial. That's one of the simplest examples of begging the question. You state a conclusion... And then the premise you use to support that conclusion is just a rewording of the conclusion. 
you've actually just said the same thing twice. Instead of saying something and then giving a piece of evidence to support what you just said, which would be a lot more persuasive. Eating smoked meat increases your risk of cancer because smoked meat contains carcinogens. That's begging the question, because a carcinogen is just any substance that tends to cause cancer. So the premise is just a rewording of the conclusion, and therefore it does nothing to actually support the conclusion. Here's an example of a more insidious type of begging the question, or at least I think this is begging the question. Adam cooks the best food because Adam cooks Italian food. The premise assumes that Italian food is the best food, and because it is the best food, and Adam cooks it, Adam therefore cooks the best food. The argument contains no actual evidence to support the conclusion that Italian food, like the kind Adam cooks, is better than other food. The actual phrase, begs the question, is a translation of the Latin petitio principiae, but because the English words begs the question could also mean raises the question or invites the question, people tend to use begs the question to mean raises the question. And why shouldn't they? Begs the question could literally mean raises the question, according to common dictionary definitions of the words beg and question. Problem is, anybody who was privileged enough to study classical logic in school is going to hear you use the phrase begs the question to mean raises the question, and they're going to think, aha, gotcha. You weren't privileged enough to study classical logic in school, and you have just revealed yourself to be a petty commoner. Guards, guards, expel the commoner from the halls of power. Back when I was a university faculty and I taught writing classes, I always struggled with how to teach stuff like that. Because on the one hand, I want to tell my students that words mean whatever you say they mean, because that's the truth. No one elected Webster's Dictionary to hold sovereign power over the language and to dictate what words do or do not mean. Language is a giant, never-ending act of popular consensus building. On the other hand, it is also true that privileged people use language in a way that is influenced by their education, and if you use language differently, they will see that as a sign that you didn't get the same kind of education they did, and they may look down on you as a result. So back when I taught for a living, I wanted to give my students the tools that they would need to take seats in the halls of power. But in doing so, I perpetuated the very same code system that people use to exclude others who are less fortunate from the halls of power. The best solution I could come up with was to say, here's what traditionally educated people understand begs the question to mean. Do whatever you want with that information, but maybe don't use it to exclude people who weren't lucky enough to afford old man Ragusea's lecture just now. Maybe when you get into the halls of power, you can abolish all of the secret codes used to exclude people on the basis of their background. Though, here's a counter argument to that. 
an old friend of mine, a brilliant writer and podcaster for a large media organization, grew up very lower class in an industrial British city. She was absolutely not born into the media elite to which she now belongs. And one day I was railing on about all of these secret codes and rules that elites use to tell themselves apart from the riffraff. And this friend of mine said something to the effect of, you know, the thing about codes is that at least you can learn them. I can learn the code of the elites and the code gives me social mobility. If you dismantle the code, then I don't know what I need to do in order to rise above my station in life. That's what she told me, and I thought that was a pretty persuasive argument that I hadn't previously considered. And that is why I wanted to make sure that you know about Begs the Question. I wanted you to know the secret code, if you didn't know it already, so that you'll be more empowered to achieve your goals in life. Anyway, hearty dishes are savory. People only ever refer to savory dishes as being hearty, and that raises the question, what does savory mean? Well, what's the antonym of savory? Savory is opposed to what, right? At least in contemporary Western culinary terminology, a dish is either savory or sweet. A sweet dish is a dessert. A savory dish is basically everything else. So does savory mean an absence of sugar? If you believe that, then you've clearly never had Thai food. Or at least you've never had the Thai food that we get from strip mall joints here in the U.S., which apparently is often Thai government-sponsored and sanctioned food. Have you heard about this? I just heard about this because John Dickerson was talking about it on the Slate Political Gabfest podcast. In 2002, the government of Thailand launched a culinary diplomacy initiative called Global Thai to preach the gospel of Thai culture abroad by helping people to start Thai restaurants all over the world. The Ministry of Commerce worked up master plans for three different restaurant types, fast food, fancy food, and whatever is in between, and they worked out master recipes for Pad Thai and Pad CU and Tom Yum Soup and all of those beloved classics. So unless I hear otherwise, I'm going to assume that my favorite suburban strip mall Thai place in Tennessee is cooking from officially sanctioned recipes, and those recipes are full of sugar. Thai food is so sweet. Maybe that's because the recipes come out of a diplomatic initiative. Good diplomats know you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. And Americans are definitely flies. We love that sweet, sweet honey. The Thai food I know is so sweet, but it is also savory. The 50 grams of sugar in my pad thai does not taste like dessert because it is balanced by... What exactly? 
Is it balanced with acid? Absolutely, the sweetness in pad thai sauce is balanced with acid. Vinegar or lime juice or tamarind or all of the above. Is that what makes pad thai savory? Absolutely not. Desserts have acid too. A piece of cherry pie is all about the balance between the sugar and the malic acid from the cherries. A cheesecake is all about the sugar balanced against the lactic acid from the fermented cream. All lemon desserts, citric acid versus sugar, need I go on? Sweet and sour is an unbeatable combination, but it is not unique to savory dishes. Desserts are also sweet and sour. So what makes a savory dish savory if not acid? Is it bitterness? I doubt it. Most of the world's cuisines use bitter elements very sparingly because we seem to have evolved our bitter taste sensation to warn us of poisons. That doesn't stop us from liking a little poison once in a while. We like a little pain with our pleasure. Hurts so good. So we use small amounts of bitter ingredients balanced by other tastes, but that's not unique to sweet or savory dishes. Chocolate is bitter. Mustard greens are bitter. Sweet and savory things can both be a little bitter. Does saltiness make a dish savory? Maybe, right? I mean, we definitely use salt in dessert. Our evolutionarily acquired taste for salt is so strong that pretty much any food that doesn't have a little salt in it, either naturally occurring salt or added salt, any food that doesn't have a little salt in it tends to taste really flat to us. For all the bad things you've heard about salt, many of which are true, at least for some people, salt is culinarily and nutritionally essential, which is one reason you'll find it in a glass of uh, LMNT, sponsor of this episode. LMNT is a delicious electrolyte drink mix with everything you might need for performing vigorous, extended exercise or other physical work, and it contains nothing you don't. That means no sugar. Unlike the big sports drink brands on the market you've already heard of, LMNT is formulated to help you meet your electrolyte needs and is perfectly suited for folks following any kind of low-sugar diet. LMNT contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio, 1,000 milligrams sodium, 200 milligrams potassium, 60 milligrams magnesium, with none of the junk. No sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, which could mess with some people's digestion, no fillers, no BS. In the podcast that I did a few weeks back about whether salt is actually bad for you, I went into detail on what electrolytes do and why you need them to remain upright and moving around. There are basically your bioelectric messengers. They transmit the electrical signals from your brain to your muscles, telling them to pedal faster, push harder. And extended exercise, manual labor, or athletic competition depletes your electrolytes, chiefly sodium. If you run out of electrolytes, your performance suffers. Your muscles cramp, you might maybe get headaches, and eventually, if it gets really bad, you just you lose total control of your body and you collapse. 
LMNT is perfect to support that kind of athletic effort, but with no sugar, which is good for those of us doing athletic effort with the intent of depleting blood glucose and thereby burning body fat. Fasting can also result in electrolyte depletion, in which case LMNT would be a godsend. Electrolyte drinks are also a godsend if you've uh, been really sick. When I got the flu a few weeks ago, I couldn't eat, and I had gruesome gastrointestinal symptoms, and I drank LMNT to recover. Really helped with my head and body aches. And let's say that you're not sick, nor are you an athlete. You're just trying to eat better. You're eating a diet of whole foods. It's possible that you might actually not be getting enough salt because 70% of the sodium in the U.S. diet comes from packaged or processed foods, according to the FDA. Lots of people could benefit from drinking LMNT. They are the exclusive hydration partner of Team USA Weightlifting and many Olympic athletes. Try LMNT totally free. If you don't like it, share it with a salty friend and they'll give you your money back, no questions asked. They have a very low return rate and high reorder rate. They send new boxes and refund immediately. You can get a free uh, LMNT sample pack when you make any purchase through my link, which is drinklmnt.com slash Adam. The sample pack contains one packet of each flavor, perfect for anyone interested in trying this out. Both first-time and returning customers can claim this offer at my link, drinklmnt.com slash Adam. That's in the description. Thank you, LMNT. So anyways, salt is not what distinguishes savory dishes from sweet dishes. Unless you have a hypersensitive aversion to salt, you probably want at least a little pinch into any dessert you're making. It might not be enough to actually notice, but you would notice if it wasn't there. The dessert would taste a little flat. If you don't believe me, do a little side-by-side test. Pull up the standard Toll House chocolate chip cookie recipe, make a batch with the teaspoon of salt they call for, and make a batch without the salt, and tell me that you can't tell the difference. I'm not saying you're definitely going to prefer the batch with salt. I think you're probably going to prefer the batch with salt, but the human race is diverse. Some people are super sensitive to salt, and that one little teaspoon of salt across that whole batch of cookies might be too much for you, but probably for most people, it's just right. It is so right. And some of us like even more. My chocolate chip recipe calls for two or three teaspoons of salt per batch. It's funny, the second hit YouTube video of my career was for chocolate chip cookies, And I didn't know what I was doing back then. I was mostly just imitating cooking show conventions I had absorbed from watching a million cooking shows on TV. And when you make a cooking show for TV, the network or the station makes you Greek all of your brands. That means you obscure any trademarked brand name that is not owned by you or by the TV people that you're working with. If you're cooking with Pyrex measuring cups, Pyrex is a brand name. So you Greek it by covering up the word Pyrex with a little piece of gaffer's tape, or you blur it in post-production. A sponsor asked me to do that once in one of my videos, and for some reason, people really freaked out about it. I still don't know why they cared so much. 
if a sponsor asks me to do something like that, I do it, unless I have a specific reason to say no, and I had absolutely no reason to give the Pyrex people free advertising in that video. I was perfectly happy to blur the name. For some reason, that made people angry. I'm really at a loss as to why. Anyway, when you're making TV shows for stations or networks with teams of lawyers working for them, the lawyers will tell you to Greek any brand names that appear in your show. Mostly, they just want to avoid any potential hassles that could come up if a brand says something like, hey, we don't like your show, and we didn't give you permission to use our trademark in your show that we don't like, so stop airing that episode immediately. Cease and desist. That probably wouldn't happen because most companies appreciate free advertising, but it could happen. It has happened. You can imagine why companies wouldn't want their trademarks visible in certain kinds of content. It would be best to avoid such a situation, so the lawyers tell you to Greek your brands. I didn't have any lawyers looking over my shoulder when I made my second recipe video after my New York pizza video that went viral, but... I had subconsciously internalized the production standards of TV networks with lawyers when I made that chocolate chip cookie video, and as a result, I figured I shouldn't say Toll House out loud. My recipe is a heavily modified version of the Toll House recipe. I just figured I shouldn't say that brand name in my video, so I tried to imply it. I said, not one, but two or three teaspoons of salt, or whatever I said. Not one and a half, but two full cups of sugar. I was trying to say, implicitly, here's what the Toll House recipe does. I'm doing this instead because reasons. I don't think a single person who watched that video got the implication. And why should they? It was pretty subtle. And the Toll House recipe, popular as it is in the United States, is hardly scripture. Not everybody has it memorized the way a gluttonous American dork like me has it memorized. Anyway, a lot of salt definitely pushes a dish from sweet to savory, but I don't think that's the defining feature of savory dishes. There are delicious super popular sweets that are very salty, like salted caramels. So we only have one basic taste left to explore, right? And I think it's the right answer. I think the defining feature of savory dishes is lots of umami. Desserts can have umami, but usually very little of it. With the exception of hipster bullshit like candied bacon and bacon ice cream that almost no one actually likes as a dessert. It's just a played out gimmick. Though I'm sure a few people actually like it and they have my blessing. But if you ever give me ice cream with little bits of bacon in it, just know that I'm going to be like, what have I ever done to make you treat me? And these ingredients, so disrespectfully. Also, there's stuff like miso-flavored cookies in Japan, but Japan is the global capital of umami. They have so much umami in Japan that it just bleeds into everything else. Sweet dishes generally keep umami to a minimum, while savory dishes generally maximize umami to the best of their ability. This should be 
hardly surprising. When Kikunai Ikeda discovered the chemical nature of umami in 1908, he coined a neologism to describe this basic taste, umami, which, as I understand it, is the Japanese words for delicious and taste smashed together in a typically whimsical, cutesy Japanese sort of way. It's really a rather vague name, and it has no direct equivalent in English, so when people tried to translate it into English, they went with savory. This indicates that people have long known, at least on a subconscious level, that the single most significant defining characteristic of a savory dish is a high level of umami, the basic taste we get on our tongues in response to glutamate and some related amino acids, and that is greatly enhanced in in the presence of certain nucleotides. Umami is the taste of protein. Not all protein tastes umami-y, but anything that tastes umami-y contains lots of protein, or at least it contains some of the constituent amino acids of protein. And as we've previously established, one of the defining aspects of a hearty dish is that it is savory, which means that it has a lot of umami. Not all savory dishes are hearty, but all hearty dishes are savory. What's a savory dish that isn't hearty? Well, I talked about one the other day on another fella's YouTube channel, Johnny Harris. You heard of that guy? He comes out of a legacy journalism like I do, but he's much more popular and younger and handsomer than I am. And his videos have much higher production values. Johnny talked to me for a video that he made about Doritos. It's up on his channel right now. Apparently, Johnny has an overwhelming craving for Doritos in the morning. That is his breakfast. And he asked me why this craving is so intense. And I said, I don't know, man. If it's really that intense, maybe go to your doctor and see if you have some kind of electrolyte imbalance or amino acid deficiency. There are, there are medical conditions that can result in salt malabsorption, for example, and that would give you a salt craving. I don't think he addressed this in his uh, finished video. And of course, Johnny's medical history is his to share or not to share as he pleases. But Johnny found a way to say something really profound about Doritos that I have been trying to say for a while, and I just never put the words together in the right way. He really hit the nail on the head about what is so insidious about Doritos and other junk foods flavored with MSG. There is, of course, nothing wrong with MSG in and of itself. It's just sodium and glutamate, two basic nutrients you eat all the time in other foods. I'm not sure how often sodium and glutamate are found ionically bonded together in the form of a salt in nature, but they immediately dissociate when dissolved in the water of your saliva or your stomach or in the water of your food if it's a wet dish. The sodium and glutamate ions come apart instantly. Perhaps because glutamate is used by your brain as an excitatory neurotransmitter, 
MSG does seem to be a migraine trigger in some people who suffer from migraines, but such people also often report that other umami-rich foods can trigger migraines, like mushrooms and tomatoes and aged cheese. Aged because you need the fermentation process to break down the milk proteins into their constituent amino acids. You can't taste the glutamate unless it is free. It has to be unbound from the protein from whence it came. That's why we ferment soybeans and wheat into soy sauce, to liberate the glutamate. Or more often these days, it's done chemically with acid hydrolysis, because you can do that in three days instead of three years, which is how long it takes to brew traditional dark soy sauce. This is why properly dry-aged beef tastes so much more umami-y. Several different degradation processes free the glutamic acids from their parent proteins. There's nothing wrong with MSG that isn't also wrong with other foods containing lots of sodium and glutamate. MSG's bad reputation is probably mostly due to the fact that it's a new food, and it's a foreign food to those of us in the West, and we call it by its chemical name, monosodium glutamate. Anything sounds scary when you call it by its chemical name. As the meme goes, be careful with that dihydrogen monoxide. It's highly reactive. It's volatile at high temperatures and causes horrific burns. Dihydrogen monoxide is water. Apparently, there's a thing now where people are trying to rebrand MSG as savory salt. Nothing wrong with that rebranding. But Johnny Harris, in that video he interviewed me for, really hit the nail on the head about why foods like Doritos, flavored chiefly with MSG, are bad. The MSG tricks your brain into thinking you're eating something much more nutritious than what you're actually eating. Doritos are just pure refined carbs and oil and sodium and almost nothing else. Carbs and sodium are both essential nutrients, but most people in developed countries get way more carbs and sodium than they need, to the point where it hurts us. We evolved to love the taste of glutamate, and certain related amino acids, because they are generally found in foods that are rich in protein, which we need. If a naturally occurring food has free glutamates in it, that's because it is full of protein. But in the world that we humans have created for ourselves, where we've refined specific chemical components out of whole foods, we've created a previously impossible food, which is a chip, or whatever it is, that has a ton of free glutamate and yet has almost no actual protein at all. That's what Johnny said in his video. He said, the Dorito tricks his brain into thinking he's eating a juicy steak when he's actually eating deep fried corn paste. That is such a good way of putting it, Johnny. You eat a chip covered in MSG, it tastes like you're getting a lot of protein, but you're really just getting a lot of glutamate, which is an amino acid. 
And the reason we eat protein is to get the amino acids that comprise proteins, but there are 20 different amino acids out there, and glutamic acid isn't even a particularly important one as far as diet is concerned because it is non-essential, meaning your body can synthesize glutamic acid out of other amino acids that you eat. Why we evolved to be able to taste glutamic acid and not one of the other essential aminos like isoleucine or tryptophan, I have no idea. That seems like a design flaw in the human species. I should write a sternly worded letter to the management about that. It might be because glutamic acid is a particularly abundant amino acid in nature, and so that's why we evolved to be able to taste it and not all the other ones, but I would love to talk to an evolutionary biologist about umami sometime. Seems like a weird choice. If your taste buds can only taste five things, why would one of them be an inessential nutrient? Anyway, this, I think, is why nobody refers to Doritos as being hearty, despite the fact that they are savory AF because they're coated in savory salt. Doritos only have two macronutrients in great abundance, carbs and fats. They have very little protein. A hearty food is one that has everything you need and is savory, which is to say it has lots of umami. James from the UK, who started all of this, described a stew with vegetables and pulses and potatoes and sausages. Sausage tends to have more umami than other meats for too many reasons to get into right now when I'm trying to land the pod ship safely. But the salting and the curing probably frees up lots of glutamic acids so that you can taste them. That, I think, is what hearty is. Hardy is a nutritionally dense and nutritionally diverse food that is also high in umami. I did it. I landed the pod ship. If you'd like to be on a future mission of the USS Ragusea pod, or actually let's call it the HMS Ragusea pod in honor of James and his most gracious sovereign. If you'd like to Stow away on the good ship Ragusea pod. You can email a video or an audio file to askadamquestions at gmail.com. Speaking of the Brits, we'll be talking Thursday on YouTube about why the Brits refer to half of the foods they eat as being some kind of pudding. Make good choices. Talk to you next time.